Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Complete Center's Guide. I am your host, Tyler Fowler, and CSG is the podcast where you, the listener, can come to hear all different kinds of biblical perspectives. We at CSG love inviting guests on the show who differ from us concerning biblical doctrine to join us and explain why it is you believe what you do. As a disclaimer, not every episode of CSG will reflect the deeply held religious beliefs and convictions that the owners of this KEQQ radio station and the Grand Forks Bible Study Group hold to. Therefore, if you would like to know what the owners of KEQQ and the Grand Forks Bible Study Group teach about the Bible, Feel free to join their live Bible study Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Heart Institute, located at 1911 South Columbia Road, Grand Forks, North Dakota. Our primary focus at CSG is threefold. One, share the gospel with the lost. Two, discern biblical truth. And three, disciple the nations. Tonight, to do some discerning, we have Robert Wiesner joining us again for a part two on our discussion concerning hell and eternal conscious punishment but first noah my co-host brother how have you been we took last week off what has changed uh anything new uh, in the uh, last two weeks i am better than i deserve tyler and no things things just continue to chug on i uh work is busier than ever so that's keeping me busy but uh god has been good man absolutely and so this weekend just real quick God taught me some very, very, like something that you have to learn just by experiencing it, right? Mm. And it, it was just, uh, I made a post about it. I really don't want to go into depth with it, but I learned how to even, you know, here, here's the thing. My background is I've always been the type of person that wants to control the situation. Sure. And sometimes things just don't work out like you want them to. And not only do we trust God with our salvation, but we trust him even whenever things don't go as planned. Right. And so uh, we might to do an episode about anyway. that. Exactly. Exactly. So we might do, um, you know, an episode about that later on down the road, give some practicality to all this theology we've been discussing. Um, but real quick, uh, no, before we bring Robert on uh, and inter- introduce him, I want to start with a psalm uh, from Psalm 37. And Noah, if you would, I, I mentioned that, you know, some of our episodes are going to differ with with a lot of different people, but namely, you know, the owners of KQQ, your dad being one of them. And so I just want to read uh, Psalm 37 from the NET and just maybe, uh, Noah, give, get you to explain what it is about this verse that they that they believe uh, concerning the topic that we're going to talk about tonight, which is the nature of hell and whether people either are punished consciously forever or do they burn up or uh, the conditional immortality view that Chris has uh, that's been on our show. But uh, anyway, so let's start with Psalm 37, and I'll just start in verse 1, and we will get to whenever we stop. So, Do not fret when wicked men seem to succeed. Do not envy evildoers, for they will quickly dry up like grass and wither away like plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is right. Settle in the land and maintain your integrity. Then you will take delight in the Lord, and he will answer your prayers. Commit your future to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act on your behalf. He will vindicate you in broad daylight and publicly defend your just cause. Wait patiently for the Lord. Wait confidently for him. Do not fret over the apparent success of a sinner, a man who carries out wicked schemes. Do not be angry and frustrated. Do not fret. That only leads to trouble. Wicked men will be wiped out. 
for those who rely on the Lord are the ones who will possess the land. Evil men will soon disappear. You will stare at the spot where they once were, but they will be gone. And then again in verse 20, it says, but the but evil men will die. The Lord's enemies will be incinerated. They will go up like smoke. And so, Noah, I know that it is, um, you know, again, the views of KQQ and the Grand Forks Bible Study Group of annihilationism, right? Mm -hmm. But would you mind explaining maybe uh, a little bit what it is about this verse, verse 10 and verse 20, that uh, they would uh, they would hold to? Yeah, so my understanding is, so the, again, to the best of my understanding, is they believe that unrepentant sinners um, uh, are, are turned to ashes, are burned up until they turn to ashes. And the scripture that they use to arrive at that biblical conclusion is Malachi 4, verses 1 through 3, Psalms 37, uh, verses 10 and 20, and Second Peter, verses 2 through 6. So the wage of sin is death. Uh, sure. as stated in Romans 6.23. Sure, absolutely. Uh, I really appreciate that, brother. So we do, like I said, at the end of the day, I really I really believe this, I really hold true to it. At the end of the day, with God's Holy Spirit, we must make up our we we must make up our mind about what the bible what the bible teaches and so to do that i again and if you've ever heard csg we examine all kinds of different perspectives and the traditional view is that people will consciously burn uh forever in hell the wicked that is and again tonight we have robert wiesner joining us uh who he holds to eternal conscious punishment uh, but Robert, um, first of all, how you doing tonight, brother? It's been a you know a couple weeks since you've been on. I encourage people if you haven't listened to that first episode that you and I did, it was only you know, I think the last maybe two episodes um, that we did that. But how you been, man? Since the last time you've been on CSG? Oh, just busy, tired, um, but joyful. <laughs> uh, glad to be back, and uh, it'll it'll be fun picking up our conversation a little bit. Absolutely. So what it, what we originally intended to do, since we've had Chris Date on before, uh, I wanted last time to give Robert, uh, and, and like I said, give uh, Eternal Conscious Punishment a fair shake. And so we were supposed to have the two, Robert and Chris, to come on tonight for a two-hour episode to do a little debating, a little dialoguing. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Uh, Chris had other engagements that he had to attend, and so we forgive him, and uh, we absolutely understand life happens, and sometimes, you know, things don't go as planned, like I learned about this weekend. But Robert, I read Psalm 37. Uh, what are your views on this? I mean, it does seem, you know, verse yeah. 10 here, evil men will soon disappear. You will stare at the spot where they once were, uh, but they will be gone. And then again in verse 20, but evil men will die. The Lord's enemies will be incinerated. They will go up like smoke, or they will go up in smoke. And so what are yeah. what is the same because it does seem to be teaching that you know wicked men will die they will perish and they will burn up. So what are why do you think different uh concerning this verse and the totality of the Bible? There there's a number of ways we can approach this. So when we were when I was on last time we started by discussing the Old Testament and um uh, you know, those who hold to annihilation or conditional immortality will put a lot of stock in what you find in the Old Testament. And admittedly, there's lots of language that uh, uses just simply death, destruction. In this case, they're they're um, slaughtered and, and burned up, you know, that sort of language. But we have to uh, set this in the context of uh, the, you know, the, the larger biblical picture, but also in development of eschatology across 
Jewish history and thought. Uh, I don't know any credentialed scholars who think, Old Testament scholars think that, that the Old Testament itself has a developed eschatology like what we find in the New Testament. It wasn't until the intertestamental period uh, where they, they began to start uh, really talking about resurrection after death and a judgment to follow that and, that and that sort of thing. And that's clearly not what we have here. What we have is a poem, right? We're, we're in Psalm 37. It's, it's poetry, which is imagery, uh, which, which is expressing the author's desire to see the wicked get what they deserve. They, they would kill uh, the righteous people. I want to see them suffer what, what they're trying to um, uh, bring against uh, the meek. It's the meek who are going to inherit the earth. They're going to uh, be destroyed. Uh, but we, we can't use that in, uh, you know, as a blank to lay over other texts, which uh, it's like, for example, the book of Revelation, some, some material in the Olivet Discourse uh, in the, the parallel, the synoptic parallels uh, from the lips of Jesus, where you have a more, a, a later, more developed eschatological scenario where um, there is, um, you know, the enemies of God are killed, but then they're resurrected and, and sentenced and, um, and I think sentenced to uh, 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 an eternal punishment, which consists of never ending torment. And so, um, you know, there, there's a really great book that I would recommend. It, it's, you know, if, if uh, you're, you know, just depending on where you are in, in your journey as a student of the Bible, but it's written by a man named uh, D. Brent Sandy, brilliant, brilliant scholar. It's called Plowshares and Pruning Books. And he goes through and, and talks about the way, you know, prophetic literature and, and, and other texts use this sort of imagery and poetry in ways that is really surprising. And if we try to make it, you know, take it at face value, take it very literalistically, it, it creates way more problems for us. And what we need to see is that these are uh, texts that are intended to make us feel something, not just to, you know, that when, when David or who, I don't know who the author of this particular Psalm is uh, off the top of my, oh yes, is of David. When David authored this, he had no design on, on giving us a detailed, uh, eschatology from it, right? right. Um, his his purpose, you know, we, we have to situate it in his context as, as a guy who wrote poetry and was uh, struggling with, with the conflicts in his life and, and, and all of that. And uh, I think there's space for a more sophisticated hermeneutic for, for reading texts like that. And that book is a really great place to go to to, to kind of develop that. Absolutely. Man. I hope that I... is clear enough, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, a hermeneutic, first of all, context Context, context is key, right? We have to not isolate passages and say, "See, this is what they teach," and with, with ignoring the entire context of the thing. A lot of a lot of scary beliefs have developed from that kind of thing, and so I, I absolutely agree. And and please go, anyone listening, check out the book. Check. I haven't personally read it, um, but I plan on getting it now that Robert has recommended uh, that. You, so you have you have to read it. It's it's. One of the, in my opinion, I'm, you know, indispensable books on biblical uh, hermeneutics. It, it focuses on the prophetic literature and apocalyptic literature, but which is obviously very relevant to, to what we're talking about right now. Um, but he, he deals with other texts as well. It's it's a really great guide for uh, how to read the Bible. Um, you know, I think more contextually and with more of an awareness for what the authors were trying to accomplish with text. They, they didn't imagine sure. us here in 2021 trying to construct a, you know, a systematic theology out of their text. They were 
writing to a particular audience in a particular situation and they use images especially in poetic literature which is what the the prophets are primarily and, and clearly what the psalms are um that that seem to conflict with one another but are not intended to give us a uh, a frame for frame picture but to to help us to feel things and and uh to you know to spur us on to to righteousness and that sort of thing so i think we have to go to other texts that are intended to lay out a detailed eschatological scenario and let those be what what guides our theology on this issue absolutely and so i know whenever we were discussing kind of off air you wanted to go to the intertestamental text you want to go to yes. one of your specialties the second temple judaism you really got me into second temple judaism as well and i appreciate man everything you've sent me on that like i really do i really appreciate that uh it's a it's an interesting ride if you've never studied second temple judaism before you, you have to absolutely so anyway robert you've got some text uh i'm sure where do you yeah. want to go first um in in this discussion of eternal conscious uh, punishment. Yeah, well, so as I mentioned before, there's uh, not a, a developed picture of, of hell or post-resurrection judgment in the Old Testament, uh, where you really start to get that speculation. The, the, the oldest text, um, you know, in is in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, which uh, critical scholars actually date that much later than um, uh, conservative scholars do. They, they date it into um, the second century BC, whereas, um, you know, we would traditionally date it, uh, earlier than that, um, in the sixth century BC. Uh, but the reason they do that is because it's clearly, uh, speaking with, with a lot of precision about the crisis that the Jewish people were suffering under, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was the king of the, the region of Syria after Alexander the Great's empire was was divided up right and what what he's famous for or infamous for is uh imposing hellenization on the jewish nation requiring them to to be circumcised and uh, setting up a gymnasium in uh jerusalem defiling the temple and uh there was a, a persecution uh that, that sparked uh, and there was a resistant movement known as the maccabean revolt and this was a huge time of uh, Jewish identity leading uh, up into the New Testament. You know, uh, it's 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 really defining. And in fact, you can't understand a lot of the struggles that the early church is dealing with with Jewish people uh, if you don't understand this history. Um, and so, what what that ha what happened in in that case? So, looking back, uh, the nation of Israel had suffered a lot, culminating in the exile to Babylon. Uh, but then when they came back, they kind of got their act together and started being very, very diligent about being obedient to the law. But now there's this pagan king who's in charge and people are getting slaughtered for their obedience, not 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 as judgment because they've been disobedient to the Lord, but they're being obedient to the Lord, they're obeying the law, and they're, they're, they're seeking to be very, very diligent, but they're being killed because of their faithfulness, right? They're being persecuted. And so the, the question becomes then, well, what, what's going to happen to these people? You know, the, they, they've died in faithfulness. Is that the end? Like, does the enemy win? And, and mm -hmm. oh, th that sort of thing. And so uh, in that scenario, Daniel 12 speaks to the fact that uh, these righteous people who died, they will be raised from the dead. And, oh, so will those who killed them. They'll be raised from the dead as well. Uh, the righteous will, will go into eternal life and the wicked into eternal contempt. And in, in the Second Temple period, in Jewish literature written during that time, 
there's a lot of development of this idea. So, so Daniel is speaking just into that situation. He, he seems to have a limited scope of the resurrection. He says many will, will be raised, but he doesn't make it universal. Sure. But then certain uh, authors begin to make it universal or others will still have like a limited resurrection where what happens is the righteous are raised to enjoy the Christian again, all the righteous, but the wicked are simply judged as, as the dead. But, but then there, there come to be various views of what that punishment looks like. So admittedly, uh, a really great test case, the book of first Enoch, which is really a collection of yeah. uh, five apocalypses. And in, in one section, um, what's called the epistle of Enoch, you have uh, what seems to be essentially an annihilationist view that, uh, again, there, there's not a universal resurrection here, but you've got language of uh, the wicked perishing uh, by the knife and then, uh, then being uh, thrown into the judgment of fire and perishing in wrath uh, in the force of eternal judgment. This is in uh, chapter 91 of First Enoch, a very, very important Second Temple uh, book. But then in other texts, you get um, what looks like uh, an eternal torment view. So in, in chapter 10, it, it, it talks about um, uh, the, the wicked being led away into the chasm of fire and to torture into prison of eternal confinement, saying that, that they'll never be let out from this place. They'll, they'll be burnt up, and, and, and that will be like a, a never-ending situation. Um, you, you get this in, in other texts as well. Um, hold on one second. I just want to pull up uh, yeah. notes here because I wanted to comment on one more. I'm sorry. Just a moment. Oh, you're good. Um, yeah. Like, um, where'd it go? Here it is. Okay. Yeah. So uh, that's in, in chapter 10. Um, uh, you, you get, you get, um, you get this also in second Enoch, which is a text that's uh, probably contemporary with um, uh, the book of revelation where it, it talks about um, uh, merciless torture carried out by angels, and uh, it's it's a place prepared for those who dishonor God, who on earth practice sin, and and it's it's described as as unending. Um, you get in an interesting text from the apocrypha, a book called Judith, uh, in chapter sixteen, verse seventeen, um, a sort of a commentary on Isaiah sixty six twenty four, which is the the vision, the famous vision of Gehenna. Uh, 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 towards the end of, of the uh, prophet Isaiah's uh, book. And it says, woe to the nations that rise up against my people. The Lord almighty will take vengeance on them in the day of judgment. He will send fires and worm into their flesh and they shall weep in pain forever. Right? So the, the idea is there, there's never an end to their torment, to their, to their weeping. Um, uh, lots more texts we, we, we could talk about. I, uh, I don't know if you want to, uh, uh, comment or, or ask me any questions before I go on to more, but there's, there's just so much, uh, that could, we could discuss with you. Oh, there is. There is. A, a huge there is body a, of literature. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm looking at, uh, first Enoch, uh, chapter 22, verse nine, it says, yes. and he, uh, Raphael, the angel, he replied to me and said, these three have been made in order that the spirits of the dead might be separated. So we all know the story of Enoch, right? He went up into heaven. He was showed, showed many things. And what first Enoch does is describe a lot of things, but namely those things that Enoch was revealed. And so they're, they're in Gehenna or somewhere close to that, it would seem. But um, he goes on. 
uh, and in the manner in which the souls of the righteous are separated by this spring of water with light upon it. In like manner, the sinners are set apart when they die and are buried in the earth, and judgment has not been executed upon them in their lifetime. Upon this great pain, until the great day of judgment, and to those who curse, there will be plague and pain forever, and the retribution of their spirits. They will bind them there forever, even if even if from the beginning of the world. And in this manner is a separation made for the souls of those who make the suit and those who disclose concerning destruction as they were killed in the days of the sinners. Such has been made for the souls of the people who are not righteous, but sinners and perfect criminals. They shall be together with other criminals who are like them, whose souls, now listen, whose souls will not be killed on the day of, the ju- or on the day of judgment, but will not rise from there. At that moment, I bless the Lord of glory. I said, blessed be my Lord, the Lord of righteousness, who rules forever. So what Enoch is saying, or what those you know contributing uh, to Enoch says, is that he saw this place, and they, they, they never leave, and they never, they, they never die. And so I just, you know, just to add to what you were saying, you know, Robert, there there is a mountain of text, and, and this again, like I, I showed it last time, this is just the apocalyptic literature that discusses these type yeah. of things. But I do want to ask you a question, real quick. What would you say? Sure. Well, I mean, we are obviously. I mean, I well, depending on which Christian you ask, First Enoch is not scripture. Yeah. There, not, there yeah. th- that <laughs> right, right. There, yeah. there could be yeah. some talk about that, but at the same sure. time, so I think the Ethiop- the Ethiopian Church, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the only body that would say First uh, Enoch is scripture. Is, or is there others? Yeah, that you know yeah, of? There, yeah. So there, there is that tradition, the Ethiopic uh, Church, and it, it's it's a very uh, ancient tradition. So this is a text that held uh, tremendous Christian influence, and in fact, mm. we only have first Enoch because Christians uh, copied it with the exception sure. of the material in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So those those Christians in Ethiopia very much valued it. And even uh, Tertullian uh, thought it was like he thought it was authentic, that it was really written by uh, Enoch from what is it? Genesis chapter five. And um, the, the, it was scripture, you know, so uh, there is an early tradition of valuing very much. It was among those books that, that Christians read and profited from. And the reason why they did is because there's evidence in the New Testament, even citations in Jude and Second Peter and really strong allusions in First Peter and all over the book of Revelation uh, that show familiarity, at least with the traditions. In some case, what seemed to be, again, like I said, explicit citations uh, but uh, theological evidence, even in the Gospels, like all this stuff about unclean spirits and demons, um, that's unheard of in Judaism before you get to First Enoch. So uh, it, it exercised a huge influence. And, and again, as, as, as you said, we're not saying this is Scripture, and we don't lay this over Scripture and force it to you know, overturn something that, that the biblical text says. Uh, what this does is helps us to read Scripture in context. It helps us to understand the way Jewish people talked about different ideas, different concepts. And it lets us, when, when, when we've laid out a spectrum of different Jewish beliefs on whatever issue, it lets us then plot the New Testament um, and see where they landed on those debated issues. So this was a hugely debated issue. We see evidence of that in the Gospels, Jesus arguing with um, the Sadducees who denied uh, the resurrection, who denied an intermediate state, um, sure. you know that that sort of stuff, and and showing evidence that that he opposed them on on those issues. Um, 
and and this happens also. I've I've published on the relevance of Second Temple material for helping us understand the debated uh, New Testament text about predestination and election. And it's it's a helpful resource for doing that. So it's it's all about context, helping us to set these debated issues on a spectrum to plot them and, and see how biblical authors are different from these Second Temple authors, but also how they're similar to them. Because their Bible is the same Bible as the early church. They're speculating about the Old Testament. They they're in a similar context, still under Gentile persecution, you know, trying to maintain their identity as um, a Jewish people. That's what the early Christian movement was, was a, a Jewish movement. And so it, it helps us to understand what's going on there. So it's very valuable, but it's, like you said, it's a lot of literature. It's, it is difficult to sort out, that, that's for sure. We have to learn our roots. We not not saying we have yes. to get back to our roots, like because there's a lot of people that you know think we have to become Jewish again. But we have it. Yeah. It, it helps so much to learn. I mean, because just an example, right? We read the Old Testament. We get to the New Testament. We start seeing Pharisees and Sadducees that are never mentioned in the Old Testament. Where did these people come from? Yeah. So these kind of texts help us, like you just said, you know, perfectly. They help us to understand the context in which the New Testament was written. So just, just yes. you know, for those, I mean, yeah, that we'll skip that. But anyway, so let's, uh, we talked about First Enoch. Is there any other place that you would like to go or any other significant uh, things in Enoch that actually, that really, you know, help with this conversation? Yeah, well, let, let me move on from Enoch, and, and let sure. me let me start by saying that I need to own up to an error that I made when I was on your show last time. Sure. Um, I said, and, and this was this was true at the time, that uh, to my knowledge, there was no text in the in the relevant literature where resurrection, uh, a universal resurrection, is followed by the annihilation of the wicked. And uh, actually, I read, uh, because you asked me a question even about 4th Ezra, and I said it taught eternal torment. Sure. And I don't know if I read that somewhere or got it mixed up with 2nd Baruch, which is a, a parallel apocalypse. Uh, these are mm-hmm. two apocalypses that were written shortly after the destruction of, of the temple in AD 70. So they're uh, very important for understanding what's going on in the book of Revelation. But um, in 4th Ezra chapter 7, it is actually explicit there. It's, it's one of the explicit texts uh, that speak of a universal resurrection. The wicked are um, uh, taken out of, out of Hades, and uh, they stand before God in judgment. And they are tormented, but, but the text goes on to say that they're eventually um, uh, destroyed. They, they, they will perish in, in, in that sort of absolute sense. So I just want to say that um, that that text does seem to be exceptional, but it's there, and and integrity compels me to say uh, this is this is support contextually from the Second Temple period for a um, uh, annihilationist view. I, I don't want to pretend like there's there's no support for it uh, there contextually. So, uh, but uh, I do think the the majority of texts that, that speak about uh, post resurrection judgment um and i i do think the new testament texts themselves uh do indicate that it's followed by uh eternal torment um and maybe i could just read a section real quick from uh jubilees which this is a text that's influenced by first enoch this is jubilees chapter 36 verses 9 to 11 Uh, It says, and if either of you seeks evil against his brother, know that hereafter each one who seeks evil against his brother will fall into 
his hands and be uprooted from the land of the living, his seed will be destroyed from under heaven. And, and on the day of turmoil and uh, execration and indignation and wrath with devouring fire or uh, burning fire, just as he burned Sodom, so too will he burn up uh, his land and his city and everything which is his. And he will be wiped out from the book of discipline of uh, mankind. And he, uh, he will not be written on high in the book of life. And here it is. Uh, in the one which uh, will be destroyed and pass on to eternal execrations so that their judgment will always be renewed with eternal reproach and uh, execration and wrath and torment and indignation and plagues and sickness. And this is, this is significant because um, he's doing something uh, similar um, to, to what we see sometimes in the New Testament. That's taking the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Edom from Isaiah chapter 34 and uh, developing that imagery into uh, a type so that the coming judgment of the wicked is seen as eternal uh, conscious punishment. Uh, mm-hmm. So that that's something that's significant. And that's very similar to what I think is going on, as I said, in, in the book of Revelation and uh, some other texts in the New Testament. Sure. Um, it- so, yeah. No, absolutely. And what's interesting is there is, it seems to be, it's it, it's a lot. People in the Old Testament and New actually quote, the and even intertestamental period, they bring up Sodom a lot. And, and yes, they say that God will, you know, destroy the wicked like Sodom was. Why do you think that is? Is it just because Sodom, you know, and Gomorrah and the image yeah. that it leaves in our minds whenever we're reading about it, they were just so wicked? Or what do you think's going yeah. on there? Is there more significance to it than that? Yeah, they're, they're kind of a paradigmatic story, you know, like, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to think of a contemporary influential story um, that um, we, we could compare it to in, in our day, you know, but I mean, it, it's sort of like saying, you know, you're going to, you're going to suffer the way Hitler deserves to suffer or something like that, you know, like sure. that, that for them, Sodom and Gomorrah was that, that scene in the book of Genesis was an example of especially gross human depravity. And, you know, Abraham is, is begging God to spare them. And, mm-hmm. and it's so bad. There's just no righteous there, you know, that sort of thing. And so they become paradigm, of, of the coming judgment. Um, but it, it's important to say, yes, Sodom and Gomorrah is just wiped out and reduced to ashes. But there's no account of Sodom and Gomorrah being resurrected and then facing judgment, which they will be, right? So, so we can't you know, take that and lay that over the New Testament text to talk about post-resurrection judgment. And again, this is, this is typology. It's, it's always developed beyond the type. The anti-type always shows development, right? So, so by... Second uh, uh, Peter chapter two verse six, saying that that's an example. Uh, the Greek term is degma, which is another word that's that's um, synonymous essentially with the word tupos type, um, okay. saying that it's it's an example of what the uh, ungodly will suffer. It doesn't mean that we we say ah oh, well liter- you know literalistically this means that this is what's going to happen. No, this is just saying that they're going to suffer the 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 severity of of divine wrath. Uh, but but again, as I said, Revelation develops that into a, a picture of eternal conscious torment, right? So um, yes, Second uh, Peter Second Peter two doesn't spell out eternal conscious torment, but it just tells us that that they're going to suffer just like we we know the especially wicked suffer. You know that that's sort of the, sure. the sense of what's going on there. 
Right. And, and, and again, you know, if types, you know, and, and anti-types were one for one, this wouldn't be typology. That is, that's the, I think, significance yes. of typology is that there is a fulfillment. There is something greater yeah. than the type that is coming. Yes. Robert, we're about halfway through, and I don't want to cut off at this point, but I do want to ask you, since the time flies, we, we said it last time, you know, yes, an hour, does. there's just so much. Is there anything in the New Testament specifically that you didn't get to last time that you would love to touch on uh, tonight? Yeah, um, I, I think one one point would be to discuss a little bit more in the book of Revelation, uh, particularly okay. in chapter 20, where you get the, the language of the second death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, Chris, on your show, Chris Gate, um, I believe he said, if I'm quoting, uh, and this is from memory, that uh, sure. essentially it, it means being resurrected and then killed again, is mm-hmm. the idea of what, what, what John is getting at in Revelation chapter 20. And um, I, I don't think that that could be supported um, in the, in the uh, other instances of the, the use of the explicit phrase second death, but I think it's even especially problematic uh, in the uh, book of Revelation itself. So um, par- part of this is, you know, Chris is, is being moved by uh, a hermeneutic approach that, that is valid in, in visionary literature. And uh, among the many aspects of what you get in an apocalypse like Revelation, you get this uh, visionary literature where there's a strange image with lots of details and it's confusing. It's like, what does this mean? And then, and then the, um, the vision is explained in apocalyptic literature. It's explained usually by uh, an, an interpreting angel. But in, for example, in Joseph's dream, um, uh, Joseph is is given the ability supernaturally to interpret the, the the significance of it. And Chris will say, "Well, look in in Revelation 20, it says they you know they will be tormented, yada yada yada." And this is the second death. And his argument is is that. The torment is an image that is is unpacked and spelled out by referring to them being killed again. So mm-hmm. that's the significance of of what the the imagery of uh, eternal torment uh, refers to. It, it's a way of depicting, I guess, with hyperbole or something uh, that they will be killed again after being resurrected. But but I don't think that works for a number of reasons. Uh, first is that we, we first get introduced to the, the concept of the second death in the book of Revelation in chapter 2. I believe it's verse 11, but uh, it might be verse 17. One of those two is, is mm-hmm. off the top of my head. And there, uh, what you get is just a promise that uh, um, those who uh, endure faithfully in, in, in the face of the persecution that Jesus says is coming against the church, they will not be hurt by the second death. And really what Jesus is saying is that even though you will... Uh, potentially die for your uh, faithfulness, your fidelity, um, don't worry because this thing called the second death is is not going to hurt you. This thing mm-hmm. called the second death. There's something coming beyond death, a second death, that isn't going to hurt you. And it's not explained there. Um, mm-hmm. and in fact, if you read the, the letters to the seven churches there at the beginning of Revelation, there are lots of signs and uh, imagery and symbols and things like that you'll be given a stone a white stone you'll be given a new name all, all these different blessings and none yeah. of them are explained right there as what they refer to what does that mean i think that means at least two things one there was uh there was some cultural concept behind it that they could at least connect to it in some way uh, but the other is that they expected john to 
uh, fill this in as the apocalypse unfolds. And that's what we get in the last few chapters of the book of Revelation. And that's what happened with the second death. So it's not mentioned again um, until chapter 20. And there we do get it filled out. And it's it's very interesting to see the way that, that John's grammar works uh, when we get to Revelation chapter 20. Because, uh, again, I think Chris essentially has it reversed. He, he sees the uh, mention of the second death in chapter 20 as an explanation of, of the torment. I think the torment is an explanation of what the second death refers to. And, and the reason um, why I say that, um, and I'm sorry, let me uh, pull this up here. Um, uh, sorry, just let me look at the, the passages. On. Sure. Uh, you yeah, were right about I mean, Revelation 2, though. You know, What's you were that? right about Revelation yeah. 2. It is chapter 11 that says second death. So good oh, job. Verse, verse nice, 11, nice yeah, memory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I've looked at this enough, I hope. But um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, yeah. Okay. So in, in verse uh, 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, uh, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And then you have this switch to the future tense here, right? So he's mm -hmm. narrating a past time event. And then at the end of verse 10, he switches to the future tense. And this is where his explanation of this stuff comes in. They will be tormented day and night forever, right? So um, then uh, the, the, the great throne judgment uh, ensues, and there's a universal resurrection, and um, uh, death and Hades were thrown into the fire. And I, I think this refers to the people who were emptied from death and Hades as an autonomy. Um, mm -hmm. But it says anyone whose name was not found written into the book of life was, was thrown into the lake of fire. And it says in verse 14, the lake of fire is the sand death, right? So mm -hmm. again, this is, this is filling in what they were, they were promised, the, the faithful in, in chapter 2, verse 11, were promised they would be exempt from. But those who were not faithful are being thrown into this lake of fire, which is what the second death had pointed to all along. And this is consistent with the imagery we get, again, back in chapter 14, where, where it spells it out very clearly, again, using that imagery from Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, Edom from Isaiah 34, uh, but changing it so that it refers specifically to eternal torment without rest, day and night, forever and ever, for those who worship the beast and, and take his image. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think this is also supported by the use of the term second death elsewhere in, in the relevant literature. And, and this is, um, this gets a little complex as well, because there are these commentaries um, on the old Testament written in Aramaic called the Targums. Targums and yep. it's the only other Jewish literature where we have instances of this phrase explicitly the second death. And I believe there are six, if I'm remembering correctly, there are six instances. And in those texts, um, uh, and I'm going to be brief here, um, uh, it, there are, there's only one that, to my mind, and, and I think Chris disagrees with this, and so when we get on together, we'll have to hash this out. But there's only one, to my mind, that seems to imply this happens after a universal resurrection, and that's in the Targum on Isaiah, where there, I believe, with the majority of Targum scholars, but there are a couple of exceptions, that that, that is depicting um, e eternal punishment afterwards. So it talks about how the righteous will go out and they will they will look at them until they've had enough and, and then they stop looking at them. And or, you know, it's the idea that, that they will see them being tormented. And sometimes annihilationists will read that and say, oh look, see it says they'll do it just until they have enough and then it clearly they'll be destroyed after. But it doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. What I think it's saying is that 
they they'll be able to look until they're satisfied that they've seen justice has been done and they're like all right we're good we're gone but it doesn't say that they're destroyed after that it says they i think it's saying that they're, they're gonna be done looking at it they'll be happy that they've been vindicated that god had come to the rescue um in the other targums besides isaiah when that phrase is used it refers to not uh, a second death after being resurrected as as chris asserts i don't i don't think he can validate but you know we'll let him defend that when he comes on but it refers to exclusion from resurrection right so there there's this is this is a more nuanced way of saying what i mistakenly said before that any time that the second death is coupled with reference to universal resurrection which it may be in isaiah's targum but i i wouldn't be firm about that but it it certainly is in the book of revelation um, and it, it, it is accompanied with explicit language of eternal torment. So, so those are the two notions of it. And, and I think what John is doing is responding against the Greco-Roman notions of the second death, uh, where there's a, a, a Platonic notion of what the afterlife is going to look like. And we see this in a, in a Greek author named Plutarch, who mm-hmm. says um, essentially that after death, uh, we go to Hades and in, in, in their idea. And the second death is being released from, from Hades to go to Elysium, which is their, their idea of heaven or paradise. He calls right. that the second death. Um, so it's a good thing. But John's saying, no, no, no. These, these Gentiles who are troubling you and persecuting you, they think they want a second death. This is what the second death is. They will get a second death. This is what it is. They will be tormented uh, unceasingly, they will not be welcomed into the paradise, into the New Jerusalem. They're they're held out. They're they're kept out, as Revelation twenty one and twenty two says. So that's mm-hmm. what I think is going on there with with the second death. Okay, man, I I really appreciate the explanation because it, it. But it's just so interesting to me that this is not a monolithic view, you know, among um, yeah. among Jews and Judaism. And so what really interests yes. me that I did not know before until after starting to study this is that I always thought the Jews believed in a universal resurrection. And yes. now yes. I come to find out that, no, some actually believed, and Isaiah maybe uh, could be uh, attributed to the list belief. Or, or let me ask you, do you think Isaiah, yeah. the book of Isaiah, teaches a, um, a, a resurrection of the righteous, and then that is further yeah. developed throughout the intertestamental period and into the New Testament. Yeah, so uh, there, in, in Isaiah, there's a reference in chapter uh, 24 and 26, and in okay. 1 and 26 seems to say the wicked will be excluded from the resurrections in 26, 19. Um, mm. But uh, so, so Isaiah is, and scholars debate on whether he's looking at a universal bodily resurrection or if he's doing what Ezekiel 37 is doing and using resurrection as a metaphor for the nation's restoration. Mm-hmm. And I'm not fully decided on this, um, but, but Isaiah seems to only be focused, if he is talking about bodily resurrection, only focus on the resurrection of the righteous, uh, not the wicked. But, but these are the kinds of things that were later developed in the Second Temple period. Again, so... Um, what, what Isaiah is doing and what the prophets do, again, read that book, Plowshares and Pruning Hooks, is uh, when they look at uh, destruction and restoration, they look at it in this worldly terms and God restoring Israel, right? So you get the, the idea of a new creation at the end of Isaiah. And what is that? That's, that's Zion restored. That's Israel restored to the glory she was always supposed to experience. And it's the destruction of her enemies uh, at, at the end, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, but that gets that gets read as as imagery and typology that gets developed into the New Testament period and and uh, looks looks beyond that to resurrection and and judgment. So um, that's the sort of thing that that you have, and and um, it, it's it it can be uncomfortable for people with a high view of scripture because we think God should have just dropped down the final word, right? But uh, sure. a lot of the biblical literature is is not primarily aimed at you having the right theology. It's aimed at you um, engaging and experiencing the world and, and uh, feeling what the biblical authors yes. want you to feel. And so the, the hope that they're trying to give is that God is going to set everything to right. And they, they use this imagery. Again, if you, if you lay it out and try to, to um, fit it all together into a puzzle, it won't be a coherent piece. Some pieces will mm-hmm. seem contradictory to others, but if you see it as poetry, you can let them all just be laid alongside parallel and let progressive revelation do its work and let the New Testament, which is more interested in that future eschatological judgment, let that fill in for you what, what the Old Testament doesn't quite fill in. So I, I, sure. I hope that's helpful. I know it's um, it can be a hard a hard thing for people to get their minds around who have a high view of Scripture. And I have sure. a high view of Scripture. I Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. Uh, but, but what I think we have to do is ask ourselves, uh, what is this word of God when we're in any particular text uh, really trying to accomplish? Not just what does it mean, but what's it trying to accomplish? Sure. Is it trying to accomplish me having uh, a perfectly detailed eschatological scenario, or is it, mm-hmm. is it doing something else? And I think in those, those Old Testament texts, it's, it's primarily doing something different. You said the word a minute ago, and that I was thinking progressive revelation. And it's yes. true, because God has revealed not only the, you know, the covenants I'm thinking about, but, but all of his word is progressive. And so I think a big part of that is, you know, the saints, I mean, in the Bible, the saints, Old and New Testament, it's described, or as a whole, they're described as like a man. And so they start out as a little baby, and they keep growing and maturing. And and I think that there is, if we just had all of the answers given to us in the lab, our brains would explode because we can't, we can't grasp all that. And so through experience, you know, and especially like what I was talking about, you know, that happened to me this weekend, it, you learn through experience. And so I, I agree a hundred percent with what you're saying, man. Uh, progressive revelation is, you know, it, it, it's key. And so, yeah. Anyway, so let me ask you this. Uh, we're, our time is, again, going so quick. But if there was, yeah. and, and again, I, I don't like the concept of isolating Scripture and ba- making yeah. a theology off of it. But if there was one place that you think, personally, that is just clear about eternal conscious punishment, where would that yeah. be in Scripture, and why would you say that this is the clearest text? Yeah, I think it's it's Revelation fourteen nine to eleven, and I I spelled this out in some some detail last time, but um, yeah. so let me just uh, flip to it real quick here. Um, sorry, let me just get it up here on my computer. Sure. So so there you have. Um, uh, it, it goes on to talk about how this is this is about the, the the final expression of God's wrath. So I think it's pretty strongly a detailed eschatological scenario. Um, and it, it says that um, 
an angel uh, comes out and says that those who worship the beast in its image and, and receive a mark on their foreheads will drink the wine of God's wrath poured unmixed. The language there is, is undiluted, full strength, because uh, they, they used to cut their wine in order to extend their water supply and, and things like that. But, but this isn't God's wa- uh, wrath diluted. This is the full measure of God's wrath. You thought you saw God's wrath in the past? No, no, no. That mm-hmm. stuff was watered down. This is the real stuff, the, the, the cup of his anger. And it says, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And here it is, verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, which that image alone doesn't have to mean that, that they're tormented forever and ever. But what follows, I think, does. They have no rest day or night, those who worship the beast in his image. Um, Chris uh, Date has enough integrity to say this is clearly an image of eternal conscience punishment but then he, he makes some hermeneutical moves to say that uh, that's not what John really wants us to extract from this I, I, I don't buy it I think I think mm-hmm. John does want us to extract that from this um, th- th- this is the language of eternal restless torment this is post-resurrection judgment um, there, there are lots of reasons exegetically why I think we should we should take it that way again reading it in the context of second temple Judaism reading it in the flow of John's narrative but this is the, the strongest text and, and i'm i'm happy to concede by the way that there are um other there are texts for example like i i don't think the the annihilationist view is is stupid or or, or anything like that right. I i get where they come from i i appreciate a lot of the insights and sometimes i think the, the theological values that drive it are better than some of the theology that has driven the traditional view and, and that we need some more nuance, particularly with, with anthropology and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I can't get around uh, that the, the texts which most develop uh, a big picture, detailed uh, vision of what post-resurrection judgment will look like uh, uniformly include language of eternal um, and this one, very explicitly, language of eternal torment with no rest forever. You know, and, and I think that's significant, and, and we need to let it have its way. Right. It's almost like John is emphasizing the eternality of it. Their smoke, go, yes. the smoke from their torture, yes. will go up forever and ever, and or and those who yes. worship the beast and his image will have no rest day or night along yes. with anyone who receives yes. mark. I'm glad you brought up this passage because I want to ask you a question about verse 12. It says, uh, okay. this requires the steadfast endurance of the saints, those who obey God's commands and hold to their faith in Jesus. What is the, I mean, and maybe this isn't in the Greek, um, I don't have the Greek pulled up, but the this, this requires the steadfast endurance. What requires the steadfast endurance? Is it or, or just, I'll just leave it at that. What What is the this yeah. that requires the steadfast so, endurance of the saints? So the, the Greek is literally here. It's it's hoda. Uh, okay. And I think that what it's saying is that, that the per- this might be giving us a clue into the purpose of the image. Like uh, here is the call for the endurance of, of God's holy people. The idea being that um, when we see this image, how are we supposed to respond to this horrific image? We want mm-hmm. to avoid that, right? So that's part of the rhetoric that John is using, especially in chapters 13 uh, and, and following in this section, is that um, the reason why it's better to die in faithfulness to Jesus is because something worse than death will happen at the judgment for those who um, 
concede those who um, capitulate to the culture and receive the beast's mark, which is what they're being tempted to do. So he's saying, this is why that's actually not more advantageous for you. That's not better for you. Um, you're going to suffer something worse than physical death. We're all going to die anyways. Um, if you die in your faithfulness to Jesus, you're going to be resurrected to enjoy eternal life. But if you die after having compromised, you know, due to, you know, your old age and natural causes after you've taken the mark of the beast, there's something worse on the other side of that uh, after a resurrection and judgment. That's eternal torment without rest forever. So uh, that's that's what I think is, is going on here. And that's what, what uh, verse 12 is is bringing us into. And, and that's why it says verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die from now on in the Lord, right? Mm. They, there's actually a blessing on the other side of it where there's no blessing on the other side of it, but only eternal torment for those who uh, don't die in the Lord, but, but die after having succumbed to the pressures of, of the culture and taken the mark of the peace. Sure. Uh, and, and, and just to be clear about things, you know, there, Jesus said in John chapter six, there's only one work there. There's only one thing uh, that you can do. Right. And that's trust Jesus. Because here's the thing at the end of the day, whether we believe anything we've been talking about, you know, and I'm talking about unbelievers, obviously, but whether we do that or, or don't do that or whether we do, we all have to stand before God. And I said it at the beginning of this episode, and I would like to end with it. CSG's primary focus is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost. And so these secondary issues, they are so important. You know, it, it is hell, you know, forever. Do people burn up? They're interesting questions. They're, they're, they're fun, you know, episodes uh, to have on podcasts and things like that. But ultimately, it's irrelevant if you are not trusting Christ because one, because here's the thing there's two options trust Jesus and live there's the blessing that Robert was just talking about in uh, verse 13 or yeah. there's only one other option it's to stand before God guilty for sins and be cast into the lake of fire and so i just plead with anyone anyone listening think about these things think about them really hard because we're not promised tomorrow. We are not promised another second, to be honest. And we deserve, as sinners, to die, to die right now. Uh, God would be perfectly just to take my life now. But at the end of the day, again, I just, if anybody wants to reach out or anybody has questions about Christianity, anybody listening, please feel free. I know Robert would love to answer questions about that. Um, you can find him on Facebook. Feel free to contact you know us at the Complete Sinners Guide or me on Facebook uh, personally, and I would love to talk with you about Christ, Robert. In the last couple of minutes that we got, is there anything else you wanna you wanna add to the discussion, man? I, again, I thank you so much for coming on. I cannot wait for you and Chris date to get together to discuss these things and hash these things out. Uh, but but where can people find you? And, um, yeah. what, yeah, what would your last things to say be to someone listening to this right now? Sure. You know, people can find me, uh, by checking out your, your friends lists on, on Facebook, or, uh, you can go to kimmorebaptistchurch.com. You can listen to some of my, uh, sermons, uh, if you'd like to do that. Um, but, but the, the note I would want to conclude on is, is to echo what you said that, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, this is a, a, an opportunity for you to, to turn and, and become a follower of Jesus. He promises something uh, blessed for his people, for those who follow him. He shows us what the good life is, 
and uh, he helps us to avoid what whatever destruction refers to. And, and regardless if I'm wrong about it, it's not something that, that anybody wants. So uh, I'd invite people to to turn and trust in Jesus, and, and I'd be happy to help them do that. And I one more note: um, we sometimes talk about sorry about that I but man, yeah absolutely because there will be a next time and so thank you ladies and gentlemen for tuning in to the CSG uh, to be honest I completely forget about what we're going to talk about next week but it's going to be a good episode regardless it always is here so tune into that 7 o'clock and we will see you then God bless good night and be safe have a good one guys